Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today is a rebroadcast of one of my favorite episodes. I hope you enjoy. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Adyashanti. Adyashanti, or Adya, as his friends and students call him, is an American-born spiritual teacher devoted to serving the awakening of all beings. He offers teachings that are free of any tradition or ideology. His teachings are an open invitation to stop, inquire, and recognize what is true and liberating at the core of all existence. Together with his wife, Mukti, Adya has founded the nonprofit organization, The Open Gate Sangha. His books and audio programs with Sounds True include the End of Your World, Uncensored Straight Talk on the Nature of Enlightenment, and Falling into Grace. With Sounds True, Adya has also just launched a new digital subscription called Adya Shanti Weekly, Moments of Grace. You can visit SoundsTrue.com for more information. This episode of Insights at the Edge was originally broadcast as part of an online series called Waking Up. What does it really mean? In this conversation, Adi and I spoke about how he defines spiritual awakening, his view of the age-old debate about whether or not awakening is sudden or gradual or both, what spiritual awakening does and doesn't deliver, and most importantly, his pith instructions on how to wake up. Here's my conversation with Adi Shanti. Anja, it's great to be with you in person for this conversation as part of our series, Waking Up, What Does It Really Mean? Welcome. Thank you, Tammy. Such a treat to get to be with you face-to-face and do this. It's wonderful. Okay, I'm going to ask you the same first question that I'm asking all participants in this series. When you hear the phrase, spiritual awakening, what does that mean to you? Okay, when I use the, the phrase spiritual awakening, I mean something very specific. Um, is that any, not that all awakening is the same, or is of the same depth, but to me, all, to qualify as a spiritual awakening, um, it has to involve some, some type of revela- re- revelation which has the effect of shifting 
your identity, your, your sense of what you are from a sort of mind-based or ego-based identification where we find ourselves in that, whether it's painful ego or exalted ego, but it shifts from an ego-based identity to an identity that's more based in our fundamental nature, whatever we would call, want to call that fundamental nature, Buddha nature, spirit, consciousness, something that's, that's certainly transcendent of the mind and the ordinary identifications we have. I would also also add a shift from an emotional identification too, because we, we tend to identify with a kind of common emotional center as well. Tell me more what you mean by that. Well, I think everybody sort of um, has a, a, an emotional sense that when they feel a particular way, it's hard to define for each person, but it's just sort of how they emotionally and probably even energetically um, know they're here as sort of a feeling-based or an emotional-based presence. Not presence as such, but an emotionally feeling-based um, presence. For instance, I mean, this to kind of have to blow up the example so it's bigger than usual, but if someone, say, is... Um, has had um, a lot of depression in their life. And of course, nobody likes to feel depressed, but if you have, have an experience like that for a long enough period of time, at some deep level, usually below the conscious level, we begin to energetically and emotionally associate that feeling with, of depression with who we are, right? So that's, that's, a, that's an obvious example it could be, it doesn't have to be positive, I mean negative, it could also be something really positive, like being a happy, up, you know, bright person, cheery person, being a, a helper. A helper is not just an image-based identity, it also has an uplifting feeling-based identity too. So to me, there's always, they always come as a package deal, you know, whatever our our mental identity always has its energetic, somatic, egoic, uh, um, emotional counterpart to it. So describe what you mean to me by this shift. There's some kind of shift that you're different after an awakening. Yeah. This is where it gets a little bit more imprecise. I'll try to be as precise as I can, because just when we shift out of sort of the egoic identity, it doesn't mean everybody shifts into the same place. Um, for instance, someone might have a shift where they realize that they are sort of pure awareness. And they, they, they feel it in a sense. It's not just an intellectual thing, that they see the world from that viewpoint now. And that can be, um, even though that's not wouldn't be a complete awakening, in my view, um, but it's, it's an awakening... To a, to a significant degree. It's very meaningful. It's very life-transforming because you're looking at, at life then from an awareness point of view rather than an egoic or a mind-based point of view. Um, that would be, I would think that would be almost like the minimum kind of shift that I would say would be 
um, that I would even call a spiritual awakening. There can be then shifts into kind of a unity consciousness where you sense um, a sort of underlying sameness between yourself and all the other forms of existence. That's, that's a kind of awakening as well. There's, there's, there are other qualities too, but all of them involve a kind of shifting of the locus of our own sense of being. No, I think for a lot of people, they experience the kinds of shifts you're talking about for moments. They might experience it while they're listening to you or reading one of your books. But it's not really a shift in how they live their life or even their ongoing experience of themselves. It's more a vacation or a trip that they take occasionally when they're reading you know, a book by a powerful spiritual teacher. Is that an awakening? What's that? Sure, I think it's a, it's an awakening. You could oh, it's it's a temporary awakening. Sometimes I'll call those like a foretaste that you get you get a taste of something. Like you said, you you it's a vacation. But you know, like a vacation to um, we're in California. If we took a vacation to New York, if we just landed in New York, looked around for five minutes, got back in a plane, and came back here, we still would have gone to New York. We would have been there. We might not know really much about New York at all, right? We don't know much about the terrain, but we know much more than we did before we took a flight there. And so people can, it's very common for people to have these shifts that may be momentary, you know, a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, a few weeks, that then seem to seem to diminish to, to some extent or seem to disappear. Because they diminish, doesn't mean that what you realized was untrue. It just means that that it's still vacillating, you know, that it it wasn't sort of deep enough or encompassing enough to sort of become more of a stable ground from which you perceive and live from. And what would you say to someone who has had that kind of vacation taste, but it's not their stabilized way of being. And what they feel is a sense of disappointment, grief, frustration. Talk to that person. Yeah, it, it's so common. That experience is so, so common. Um, and it div, does often leave a feeling of grief or disappointment, you know, in its wake. Um, there's two things I often tell people, and they sound very contradictory, but I kind of tend to view them as more paradoxical. The first one is I often try to help people see that what they saw, what they experienced um, when everything was clear at that moment, that there is still some of that with them now. It may be clouded over. It's definitely going to be much more subtle than it was before. You know, sometimes it's revelatory. It's just put in your face. You cannot possibly miss it. But then it recedes to something that's very sort of soft, something that's easy to dismiss. So I'll try to point them towards, often by asking them a series of questions, you know, something like, can you honestly tell me that everything that you saw, everything that you realized, that perspective, that all of it is completely gone now? And in almost every case, someone, the person will tell me, well, it's not all gone. It's not like it was, though. That's what I want. I say, well, let's come back. How is it presenting now? So that's one thing I'll do. 
and suggest that not trying to grasp that or hold on to it, but just kind of abide with it. Just acknowledge that there's still kind of the perfume of it. And that can be important and significant too, because what we acknowledge tends to grow in our experience, you know, what we give a little attention to. The other thing I'll say, which is quite paradoxical, is also don't don't be grasping, don't try to recreate that experience. Mm -hmm. That was the experience of that moment. Don't become attached to it. Don't become thinking that now that's your reference point for your next experience of reality. Is it can be very difficult to let that go because in essence you're asking someone to let go of their experience of heaven, mm-hmm. you know, even if it was temporary. And it's like, really? You're asking me to let go of heaven? And yeah, because there's a dynamic that's often at play here, which is I always think of the first awakening as a gift. It often feels like that, like it just comes, like out of nowhere. And you feel gifted, you know, somehow the universe gifted you with this. Um, And I call it a freebie because it doesn't really require anything. You know, you don't earn it with merit or, or it doesn't come because you've mastered a certain technique. Um, it can come at any point and any time. And so it's free in the sense that we don't have to earn or deserve it. But once that's happened, it's almost as if the game shifts. And what was shown to you for free now in a certain sense costs you everything to live with it. In other words, um, at the moment of revelation, it's almost like the letting go is done for you mm-hmm. by automatic. And then later, it's like now that you've seen the dimension of, of where that letting go can get you, but now you're asked in a way, now you have to begin, you have to let go consciously and willingly. It's not going to be done for you over and over and over again. It may visit you again where it's all done for you, but now you're being asked to almost like retraverse the terrain that you almost leapt over when this was all done for you. And now you're doing it kind of consciously. And of course, you're also having to encounter your resistances, the confusions, everything you transcended, in other words. Now you're kind of working through your humanity what you transcended. And so that's what I mean. It costs you. You have to, now you have to really participate. You play a very conscious role in kind of walking back into what's already there, as paradoxical as that may sound. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your experience of spiritual awakening? Sure. I mean, uh, for me, there was a couple of really significant moments. Uh, I'll just describe them very as, as briefly as I can, but try to give you all the important points. The first one happened after some years of real strident um, uh, seeking. I'm really trying to have a breakthrough, um, meditating a lot, hours and hours, and um, and um, and just really, really sort of hyper focused on it. And I got to a point where I just felt 
completely defeated. I'm sure many people listening to this have felt that at times, but I just felt, I remember I sat down once and I was pushing myself so hard, you know, in meditation to cut through my thoughts and to just sort of penetrate into something. I didn't even know what it was. Um, but I sat down and sort of this, it all coalesced at one moment. And I just said to myself, as I was sitting there just about to meditate, I just can't do this anymore. I just can't. And at that moment, it was like a nuclear explosion went off inside of me. It was, it was actually um, violent. It was a very violent experience in the sense that the energy I felt was just ripping me apart. And, you know, my heart was beating extremely, you know, I was, I'd been an athlete. I know what my max, I know what a 200 beat heartbeat feels like. I was very acquainted and I was way, way, way past that. And I, I really felt like my heart's going to explode. Um, and so I was feeling just ripped apart by this energy and a thought just came out of nowhere, just in the midst of this chaotic, violent kind of experience, just a thought that I thought, if this is what it's going to take for me to be free, if, if I'm going to die today, if I just let go to this, if it's going to, if I, because I literally thought I would die physically if I just let go, if I didn't run away. And I just thought, I've got to find out. I've got to know what happens. And somehow something just let go. It was the simplest letting go. It wasn't courageous. It wasn't, it was just like I was actually willing to die at that moment. And I just let go. And like in the snap of a finger, I was in a completely different dimension. I, there was no body. There was no mind. There was nothing to see. There was nothing to feel. There was... There was literally nothing there. There was nothing there. There was no one there. It's, you know, it's not, that's a part, probably as far as I wanted to describe because the more I describe, the more image it makes. And it was the complete absence of all that. And yet somehow it was, there was no fear. There was no, there was just a feeling of absolute freedom absolute freedom. And all the questions I had struggled with, all the um, issues that I had had, they just, I just, just felt, even though I couldn't feel my body at all, that somehow that these insights were being, were flooding into me like a hundred every second so fast that I couldn't even record even a small fraction of them consciously. But there were like little lights going off or popcorn popping. And at some point it was happening so fast that I couldn't even register anything near. And it was just like something was literally like being poured into me, like liquid insight just poured in and poured in and poured in. And it went on for, I don't know how long. It was a very timeless experience. and. At some point, I kind of started to come back to my bodily awareness, you know, and surprisingly, my body was just sitting there in total calm. There was no energy left in it. There was no heartbeat, you know, that was out of control. Everything was totally fine and in a strange sense, absolutely ordinary. And I just, 
after a while, I was just sitting there. And I thought, okay, well, I got up and I always did. I sort of bowed to my little Buddha stature that I had in my little meditation hut in the backyard. And as soon as I bowed, I, I just started laughing hysterically. Mm. Just, I, it was just that seemed the most absurd thing that I'd ever seen that this Buddha figure represented to me in a symbolic way, everything that I'd been chasing, everything that I'd wanted, you know? What is this Buddha nature? What is this, what is this divinity that this symbol represents? And all of a sudden, when I bowed somehow, I knew without any doubt that, that the thing I'd been chasing was the thing that I am, that I was what I was chasing. And it just seemed like the most absurd, ridiculous joke that I'd ever heard. And the joke was on me, and I didn't mind at all. You know, and I just laughed and laughed of how ludicrous this was. Um, and so in the days after that, in the weeks, I wasn't like floating in any particular space, you know. I was, all the seeking energy was gone. I didn't feel driven in any way. That was really nice. There was no drive, because why, why be pursuing what I know I am? But there's something that's interesting that happened. On, right, at the, right at the door of my, of my little meditation hut when I was leaving, I opened the door. And right as I opened the door, this little... I call it the still small voice. And it was the place that I always knew. It always told me the truth. And that still small voice said to me, this isn't the all of it. Keep going. And at that moment, I felt so disappointed. Because a minute later, I was just hysterically laughing at the absurdity of chasing this eternity and realizing that I was eternity. And now this voice is saying, this isn't the all of it, keep going. And I just kind of felt like, oh no, you can't be. And then literally like within a few seconds, I realized that it wasn't discounting what I realized. Nothing said that what I realized wasn't real or true. It was just telling me there's more to the picture. Don't fixate here. Don't stop here. Um, and so even though I had no seeking energy, no drive, you know, to attain, I, I knew that it was told me the truth. I knew that there was more, there was a, a deeper clarification that was going to come that came about, gosh, it was a while later, probably six or seven years later, when it was a totally different experience. When I, again, they always happen when I first sit down to meditate, not even when I really got into meditation. But one morning, I sat down to meditate. Um, I used to meditate early in the morning, a couple of periods of meditation, before I would go see my teacher on Sunday mornings and meditate with her group and see her. So I was, sat down to meditate. And again, just as soon as I sat down, um, I heard there's a bird outside. And I heard the bird. And again, up from my guts, not from my head, because I had never thought of this question or anything, up from my guts, this little question came up and it just said, who hears this sound? (sighs) 
And all of a sudden, the bird, the bird call, the sound, and my hearing of the sound were all all one event, just one thing. There wasn't There wasn't me sitting on the chair, meditating, hearing a bird. There was just this one thing. And this was different, you know, than what happened before. That was like getting blasted into total emptiness before. Transcendence. This was, I was very much here. It was almost like that transcendent energy entered into human form displayed itself as as the world and so once again I sat there for a while but there was no the beauty of it it was it was like this pure experience there were no even though now it's still emotional to me to describe it to you as you can tell but at that moment, there was no emotion to it. There was no byproduct. There was no bliss. There was no expansion. There was so, which was beautiful because I could, there was nothing to get in the way of seeing what the truth of it was to have the absolute perception with no experiential byproduct, you know, that I was going to try to hang on to later. It was just so pure and so simple and so immediate. And I got up after a while, once again, and I, I did what I do because I'm a very sort of practical person by nature, you know, and so I got up and I just wanted to see if I wanted to test it, actually. Mm -hmm. And so I started to look at the most inanimate things I could, the little tiny refrigerator that at that time we lived in a 400 square foot cottage where a refrigerator was two feet tall. And I looked at the refrigerator and sure enough, me in the refrigerator was one and the perception of it was one happening. And I went all through the house and looking at that, you know, I went into the bathroom. I literally looked at the toilet because I, I was literally kind of like testing it, you know. Is there any, can I find separation anywhere? And uh, I went in the bedroom, I opened the bedroom door, Mukti was still asleep, my wife, and sure enough, it was just like there I was sleeping. Yeah. And then I, you know, started to get ready to go see my teacher and... Uh, It was the, f the feeling though, was after I went in the bedroom and then I came out in the little living room area, I'm kind of getting ready. The fascinating thing was that everything I did, every step across the floor, I felt like I'd just been born. Like 
something opened its eyes. That had never been here. That's what it felt like. I'm not saying that that's what happened. That's a way of describing the experience. Like something was here for the very first time. And everything was for the first time. And yet it was wonderfully ordinary. Just ordinary. There was no fireworks. And I went off and um, went to see my teacher and went about the day. And I didn't even bother to mention it to her for two or three months because it was so um, sufficient. You know, I didn't need acknowledgement. I didn't need... I didn't need it to such an extent that it never even occurred to me to tell it to her until after about two or three months later, I thought, oh, it would be, it would be kind. It would be, it would be proper that this thing that she tried to point me to over, you know, all these years that I would tell her about it. And that was the, that was the only impetus. And so, I, you know, I shared it with her and, and, uh, and then went on about my day, and it, you know, it's, it never, it, it, I mean, of course, it, as revelation goes, it, it, it's never left me. It's, it doesn't got that sort of, wow, for the first time, I've never seen this feeling to it, because now I've been, you know, existing within that for 20 years or something now, it's become, um, more ordinary, but as you can say, when I describe it, it's still of deep significance and it's still always with me. And I'm often struck um, by at many odd moments that I'll feel like the first time for something, you know, the first time of walking somewhere or I'll be drinking and all of a sudden it's like I've never drank. It's just for the first time. And it, but it's not like it didn't have like the me going, ooh, wow, the first time, isn't this fantastic? Isn't this great? It I was so, I was, it was, that's all there was. There wasn't a reflecting on it. It's all there, it's all there was. Um, so those are two, you know, moments. The last one is very brief, that a year to the day, to the very day, which I always thought was, the strange ways that life weaves together. I, I'm Mukti's, my wife, and she's comes from a, an Irish family, and so they have Irish roots in Ireland. And and I had this awakening I just described on St. Patrick's Day. And a year to the day after that, on St. Patrick's Day, which never held a great significance to me, you know. I, I didn't even know it was St. Patrick's Day until later, in retrospect. But a year to today, then, the, 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 the last thing was um, just sitting on the couch one day, reading a book, and um, just being done reading, and I put the book down, and I stood up from the couch, and 
And it was like I left something behind. I didn't know what it was. Like, it was simple, you know. I was just like, I left something behind. Just like that, I thought, what did I leave behind on the couch? I got up and something didn't get up with me. Something that had just, you know, kind of like been with me. And later that day or that night, I didn't even think about it much after that. It was a curiosity. And I, but that night I was getting ready for bed. I sat down on the edge of the bed and all of a sudden it struck me. Oh, I lost myself. And it was just the simplest recognition, you know. Again, no fanfare, but just, oh. And now the way I describe that when, when someone asks me about it is like, what was that like? And I think the most concrete way I can put it is, is I, uh, that I lost my inner life. That, you know, that life where you sort of process through things and the, the sort of narrative that's talking to itself about everything. Mm -hmm. um, I don't mean to say that there's never a thought that flows through my head, but it's not of a narrative quality that I've lost all the, all any kind of sort of mental processing thing just disappeared. It just is gone. And so there's a different way of experiencing almost everything. Um, you know, and then, but those are significant moments, right? There's just, there's significant moments, but to me, um, it's not just about the significant moments. You know, then there's sort of this, there's specific discrete moments. And then there's also what I think of as, here I'm 20 years later or more, and there's still like an, an awakening. It's the verb of awakening that's continued, that there's just seems to be just an ever deepening clarification of what of what was realized in those moments and ever and an ever deepening capacity and ability to embody it, you know, in my humanity, which seems to I don't see an end to that capacity to embody. And I'm always noticing that, you know, oh yeah, that's there's a new way to embody. There's a more precise way or a way that feels more integral or more whole. So there's, there's awakening as a verb too that's, that continues and, and it, it's, it keeps, and for me, it kind of keeps a humility there, you know, because whatever I thought was, might have thought was sort of all-inclusive last week, I realized, you know, at some point, oh, there's, there's another way to look at the same thing. You've been listening to Insights at the Edge. When life drastically changes, whether by choice or circumstance, often the hardest part is letting go of what was familiar and stable. With Hard Pivot, Olympic speed skating champion Apollo Anton Ono shares his five golden principles for letting go of the past so that we can reinvent ourselves and live with creativity and purpose. You can explore the book 
free teachings, and more at hardpivot.com. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, you mentioned that with this third instance, the losing of yourself, that you started experiencing the world in yet a different way. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what that different way is. Well, it was experiencing world. It wasn't necessarily a perceptual shift like the last two I, I, I said. In both of those other experiences, I had transcended self. In the first experience I described, I transcended ego and self. And the second one, that was also a transcended self. Um, um, but there was still a... I came to see that to transcend self, and which, which when you do that, you know that, that certainly ego is sort of a useful and mostly useless fiction, you know. Um, you know that. But when we transcend something, it's not the same as it's falling away. That's what I realized, is, is, is when it fell away, what fell away was this sort of, um, another way to speak about it was um, like the self-referencing sort of turn or arc of consciousness that tends to reference, all, and usually what it's referencing is ego, is the, e- the image, the idea, the story, the process. And then when the ego's not really a big part of what's happening inside, the, the, it's like this turn of consciousness is orienting back towards itself. So it could be quietness, it could be peace, it could be a whole host of nice experiences, or not so nice experiences. But, um, but there's this, it just keeps, there's this turning inward. I don't really know how, it's like consciousness doing a U-turn or something. And then somewhere along the line, the U-turn just stops. And it stops because there's really nothing there for it to look at. There's no process going on. There's just nothing there. You know, like, how long would you look into an empty room? At some point, you would turn around and just go somewhere else. And that's what happened that la- on that one day on the couch, is something just stopped looking into an empty room. It just turned around. And so it's not like a perceptual shift. It's more like, for quite a while, it was kind of an oddity. I would even say to myself, it's strange. There's no process. There's no process going on. There's no, um, you know, not that I can't use, like, say, deductive logic or things like that. But, I mean, no, like, emotional process. There's no working something out because there's nothing there to do it, which doesn't mean that, you know, I'm emotionally perfect or I don't mean to project ideas like that, but there's just, it's like the understandings just come of themselves. So I can just pose a question and the question, I don't even work with it. And I wouldn't even be able to work with it anymore. Um, It's just, if I have a question, it's just there. And then at some point, the an insight that's a resolution of the question just comes up and there's no at least discernible process. 
perhaps under the un, in the unconscious level there is, but consciously there's, it's just kind of life without without a process. Now, Ajay, when here in this conversation, when you were talking about these awakening moments, markers, turning points in your life, you actually were quite moved, emotionally moved. I mean, yeah. I'm here with you so I can see it in your face, yeah. hear it in your voice. And what's going on for you when that you've had this? That's actually a feeling? really good question, Tammy, because I don't actually know. And the reason I say that is because, you know, I don't talk about this stuff a lot, but I do share it when I think it's useful. And in the early days, shortly after this stuff, it would create a kind of emotion because there's a kind of poignancy and, and significance. It's, it's like the deepest jewel you have you're, you're sharing with somebody. And it means, you know, it's more meaningful to you than you could ever describe. But for years, for the better, I would say the better part of 10 or 15 years, I haven't really gotten emotional when I've described it. So it was as much a surprise to me as it is, you know, to, to you or to anybody else. It's, um, I don't know why I felt that, but I, the poignancy of it was really, is what I was really experiencing. And the, the, um, uh, I think I just felt how valuable it is to me how valuable not not the past but how it's living now that you know it's almost like maybe it has to do with age also it's like almost like like feeling like the older you get you realize the gifts that you've been given and you appreciate them you know it's a different time of life you know i'm 52 instead of 32 um maybe that's some of it too that i I really appreciate some, you know, some of what's occurred for me, and I'm, um, I think I'm also humbled by it. I, and I don't mean that like in a I'm humble sense, but I just mean, um, I think I'm definitely, I'm completely at peace now with my humanity. Where I didn't struggle with my humanity after these things, but I don't know, now I feel, you know, these kind of experiences can kind of make you feel, um, <laughs> it's going to say another paradox, kind of strangely at one with, but in another part, in another sense, apart, because experiencing or perceiving something that a lot of people around you aren't. So whenever you experience anything, there's an apartness, a little bit of an apartness to it. But, um, but now, you know, that's part of this ongoing awakening verb and maturing, really, is I think of what it is, um, that, um, that I'm just very comfortable with, with the entire experience of existing and the human experience, and I think poignancy and appreciation is something about our limited humanness that um, that feels those emotions. And perhaps because I'm even more and more and more comfortable and appreciative of the humanity with all of its, you know, frailty and all the rest, um, perhaps that's, 
mm-hmm. a reason, you know, that's, that's what I, it just feels like that. I'm trying to give words to something that's yeah. hard to, yeah. hard to describe because I, like I said, I haven't felt emotional like that about it for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. I certainly don't mind it. <laughs> I think most people's experience is that awakening is a gradual process for them perhaps small punctuated moments, but not the kind of story that you share for yourself, the kind Mm of depth, nuclear explosion. And I I think that's more rare. And one of the things I'm curious about is, do you think that people can actually reach a depth of knowing, a, a depth of awareness of being, however you want to put that, this shift in identity through a gradual approach? Or do you think, really, mm-hmm. come on, at some point there has to be some big, dramatic event? It's mm, a good question. I appreciate that. Um, so I'll, honest, I'll answer it as honestly as I can, which is um, the reason that I'm reflecting, the reason for the moment to reflect is because uh, boy, one of the things that really stands out in my experience these days is how paradoxical um, truth is. It's not paradoxical in experience, but it's paradoxical as soon as I even think about it to myself, much less describe it. And so what I mean by that is, is yes, I've seen people that have had quite gradual awakenings where things are realized like in retrospect, where there's been some real change. And I don't mean just ordinary psychological change, but a real fundamental change of how they perceive life. Um, that they just kind of slide into and they don't know they a day comes when they kind of go oh yeah yeah it's like they recognize it but they can't tell you when um but having said that i think that there with any i can't imagine any kind of awakening that at some point there weren't these moments of recognition, not necessarily, you know, mind-bending experiences, but just recognitions where you really do realize unequivocally that you really are perceiving differently than you did. Um, you know, if you, if you never know that you're perceiving differently than you did, then it's, you know, it's, <laughs> that's one of the hallmarks of, of, of a real shift, is there's a consciousness about what's happening. Um, so it's kind of in the middle, you know, there's, I think there will always be moments of recognition, but, um, when I look back, the, the reason I think in large part that the first opening was so explosive, even violent, it was very much connected with how difficult I was pushing. I was like a, a bottle of carbonated liquid that just had been shaken up for five years violently. And then the top got taken off of it. And, you know, there's going to be a violent eruption of that energy. It's like it's all going to explode at one point. Um, so I think I was almost, without knowing it, kind of creating and storing this kind of psychic tension that released. That's why later, years later, when I had the other awakening, it wasn't violent at all. It wasn't explosive. It was revelatory. But there was no explosive quality. It's because I wasn't pushing I wasn't striving. There was no buildup of psychic tension that had been happening. And so some people are just hooked up to where 
striving in the way I was striving, it's not part of their makeup. They can have the same interest, but they, they go about it in a different way, and they're probably not going to experience um, these, you know, really almost volatile-sounding shifts. They're going to happen more, more gently. Um, so I actually, and when I've, since I've been teaching and I've watched people have different awakenings, usually when it's real explosive, there has been a buildup of psychic tension, either through their, their own seeking or through, through their psychology where they've been carrying a tremendous amount of pain or sorrow, something that's created a, a deep psychic tension. They're the ones that tend to have these explosive awakenings. And the people that, for whatever reason, they're not hooked up to carry a lot of psychic tension, um, theirs are much more like a, a bit more like a flower opening. It may open quickly, it may open a little slowly, but there's a gentleness and an ease to it. Um, you know, I often tell people now, it's, you know, I know I can't alter people's course. Anyone more than my teacher can convince me not to strive like I was striving, but I certainly don't try to uh, encourage um, a, kind of, a kind of pursuit that builds up a great psychic tension because number one, it's not ultimately necessary. It may be necessary for a particular person like it was me, but ultimately it's not necessary. And it's not always wise. It's not always wise. It takes a kind of, uh, it takes a kind of ordinary human groundedness to be able to experience those things without you coming out of it feeling very ungrounded or extremely disoriented. Even though it was a wild experience, I, I mean, 10 minutes later, I did not feel ungrounded at all. And that's because I was just kind of a pretty grounded kind of person going in. But if you're not, I, then I really try to get people, don't push really hard if you're already all, you know, all tight, tight up inside, because it may not be the best thing for you. You may get more ground, ungrounded than you're ready for. Okay, just two final questions for you here, Aja. I've met people who I think have had some level of a spiritual awakening, but they still seem quite challenged in parts of their life. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's their relationship life or their ability to function well in organizational life, which is relationship life, something like that. And, and I'm curious to know, what do you think awakening does and doesn't deliver in a person's life? Oh, that's another good question. Well, it, when it's authentic, it does, does it deliver these sort of profound perceptual shifts? That, that's, you know, that's not real accurate, but I think it kind of gets the point across. There is these profound perceptual shifts. It, that's, that's, that's sort of the hallmark of it. But um, I think one of the things that can be disappointing to people, and that's I kind of call it the selling pitch for enlightenment, you know, which isn't really all true, is that, you know, these, these profound experiences or even all the way, you know, up to a, a fair degree of enlightenment, it doesn't mean that it solves all your problems for you. It doesn't mean you, got, you necessarily have all your mo emotional baggage together. It does not mean that you know how to be in a relationship well, romantic, friendship, business, um, any more than 
you know, having this big spiritual shift makes you suddenly capable of understanding theoretical physics, you know. Um, there's all these, as I see it, there are different lines of development with us. There's like a relational intelligence. There's an emotional intelligence and maturity. There's a spiritual intelligence and maturity. And they're all interconnected, but they're, they're interconnected, but not the same. Just like everything's actually one, but I am also still a distinct individual. It's not one or the other. Mm -hmm. Oneness doesn't cancel. So, so even in spirituality, it's a part of, of who we are, of what we are. But it's, it's, um, it, it, it opens, you know, when your perception changes, you often have deep emotional change also. You're less attached and all that kind of stuff. And, and you tend to be, a, you, the possibility to be able to relate better or to be able to have your emotional baggage um, handled with much more ease or resolution, the possibilities there, but it in no way is anywhere but a guarantee. Most everyone will, you know, even with really powerful, powerful shifts, they'll have to at some point own up um, to their, to what's left of their confusion, of their sort of emotional confusion or conflict or dysfunction, their relational dysfunction. I mean, you know, we could talk for a long time of the things that I, other parts of myself that matured you know, over many years, and I'm sure we'll, I hope, still maturing and will mature until my lifespan is over on a human level, as well as a spiritual level. So I think that's part of like the honesty, you know, if, you know, these awakening experiences, they do not bestow perfection on anybody. They do not make you, you know, they do not necessarily make you instantly easily to get along with, but they do give you a groundwork from which it's much, it is easier and more advantageous to address whatever conflict may still be there, but you still got to own up to it. And you got to be honest and you got to step to the plate, you know, because sometimes people just kind of try to cop out and go, well, I've had this shift and it really doesn't matter. I'm not my ego. I'm not my mind. I'm this, I, you know, I'm pure spirit. And so it doesn't matter. Number one, that's, that's a profound state of duality, right? Um, so it's not anywhere near, it may be a significant realization, but it's nowhere near complete. And it's also, it's dripping with ego hiding out in a transcendent place, not wanting to deal with anything, not wanting to step up and take responsibility. So you know, we also can deceive ourselves and we can use our awakening to deceive ourselves. That's why I always say to anybody that your real great guide is your capacity and willingness to have great honesty with yourself so that when you do hide, you'll catch on to it and you'll own up to it, you know, because that's why I always say we have a human component to us and um, we've got to become comfortable with that human component. My final question, Anja. I mean, I know all of your teaching work, in a way, is about awakening. But here, I'm going to ask you for your pith instructions, just the pith, for our listeners who are interested in waking up. What's mm -hmm. the pith? Oh, well, now you've put me on the point, haven't you? Thank you. I don't mind it at all. 
<laughs> okay, here's the pith instruction. Since, as I see it and as I work with it, awakening has to do, at least for initially and for quite a long time, with our identity, our true identity, first know that that's what it's about. That's the bullseye that you aim at. And you look at whatever the identity, your identity is, and it's that identity you're calling into question. That's what it's all about. It's not about whether your consciousness expanded, how you feel, what you experience, if you see lights or angels or visions. It's all about moving your base point of identity. And so one of the most simple, well, let me give you the most simple. This is oversimplified, but I think it's very useful. Something that anybody listening can take with them, a question that you just ask yourself without answering the question. Never answer the question, but ask it and see what it elicits in your experience. You have your eyes open. What is it that's looking through my eyes? What is it? And just endeavor to sense into that and to feel into that, not define it. What is it that's looking through my eyes? What is the experience of that? What is that? Just something that simple. You know, if your eyes are closed, if you're meditating, what's noticing this thought? What's noticing these feelings? What is that? And don't answer it. Just let the question evoke whatever it's going to evoke and just um, stick with it. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.